and I was sent photos of the land by the, uh, by the owner. And it's Tuscany, what can you say? It's, it's 45 minutes away from Florence, 20 minutes away from Pisa, 20 minutes away from a major Tibetan Buddhist center, Tsongkhapa Institute. Um, and it looks out over the ocean. And it's agricultural land. And it's 13 acres. And it's dead cheap. For various reasons that are just extremely unusual, but it's really, really cheap. So I made inquiries. And so over the last week or so, then working very closely with Andrea and another person here, the people here probably can guess who it is, a lot of, a lot of conversation, lots and lots of emails, uh, approaching a particular lama, because I'd heard, this, I, I knew it wasn't, it wasn't a hearsay, that this lama had taken a very definite interest in that, in that property. So working very closely with someone here, crafted a letter, because I don't know this lama very well, crafted a letter that was absolutely what I meant, but also really suitable and sent the letter, the email, off last Wednesday. Uh, and I had a sense when he, when, when he sent it, it was absolutely true. And what I said essentially was, I have this, um, this vision, this project, that I have written out a proposal directly under the guidance uh, with enormous inspiration and direction from His Holiness Dalai Lama for creating a contemplative research facility. And I think you already know what that means, so I won't explain. Uh, but, and I added, and that was, well, that was just true, I don't tend to, say things that are not true intentionally, um, that if you have any interest in this property yourself, then I simply rejoice in whatever you do. Whatever you do, it will be wonderful, and I, and I will not do anything. That is, when it comes to Dharma, just generally, I'm not a competitor. When it comes to Dharma, I'm absolutely not a competitor. And so I said, you know, if you're not interested, and it would have your blessing, then I would see if I can acquire this and see maybe that could be a site for such a center. And if you have any interest whatsoever, just let me know. And that's it. I have nothing more to do. You know, that's it. And so, uh, so you saw me Saturday night, wasn't it? Saturday night. Uh, so I said, I have to read something. Well, that was the response uh, by way of his personal assistant that, uh, go for it. Go for it. Uh, yes, absolutely. Do it. That is no competition at all. And then his assistant then wrote and kind of got a counter Affirmation, double sealed. Yes, no problem whatsoever. So since then, again, a lot more conversation, conversations, emails back and forth, conversations here, and then with the owner. Now we're in direct contact, and the owner really would like to see this happen. And the groundwork, a lot of it is laid with, with these, I would say city council. It's a city of, what is it, 1800, I think. It's a town. It's a little village just across the way. Uh, it's very Italian. You know, Italian places tend to be very Italian. It, it's utterly charming. So, um, so this place seems to have enormous potential. And I've spoken, Andrea has been there, he's seen it himself. And he said it would be plenty big enough to have a mine center right where the road is. You know, and then the, the land kind of tapers off, it, comes, it goes up to a crest, a little ridge, but it's a very gentle slope. And so the mine center could be on one side, go over the slope, and then retreat hut after retreat. He said, I said, could you have 20? And he said, oh, easy. So. So I've been quite excited, quite happy. <laughs> when you've been trying to do something in your hometown for seven years and getting absolutely nowhere, and then uh, it was two long conversations with His Holiness, Dalai Lama, one in London, another one, was it two years ago? Maybe you don't know either Dumala or Elizabeth, but uh, I, I, right during, it must have been two or three years ago. I think two years ago, because I know it wasn't last year. It wasn't last year, it was two years ago, so there's some time here. 
then I was encouraged to come back and have a follow-up conversation with His Holiness. So I had like three days break between teaching an eight-week retreat and CEBTT. And I was like, oh boy, I'll hang out with Klaus's place. He's got a villa. You know, I'm going to hang out there and I'm taken care of and his, his cooks and all, you know, I'll be the little pasha for three days. And then suddenly I'm on an airplane to Delhi you know, to go up to Dharamsala for a 50-minute conversation. Uh, and then flew back again. You know, and it was worth every bit of it, but His Holiness then told me exactly, you know, this is, this is what would be good. Well, I have been working for two years with a couple of colleagues, one in particular, to try to do that in India. And with complete lack of success. I mean, it really, I mean, actually no success whatsoever. Uh, despite enormous amount of time and effort and so forth. So that just didn't just, happen. Just, the energy just wasn't there. There was nobody there, it seems, apart from His Holiness, that really wanted to see it happen. So no success in India. No success in Santa Barbara. And then comes the good life. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know Italy. And I know Italy moderately well. I've been there quite a number of times. In fact, I've taught right near there in Pisa and at the Songobi Institute. I've taught in both places three or four times. I don't know. So that's what's cooking. And it will be a very modest amount of money to acquire it. Uh, and the owner really would like us to have it. And, and he's not selling it to anybody else. So there are little kinks here and there, but really soluble problems. And... Uh, so, we're just looking closer and closer. Andrea has been very helpful, the person I've been working with, very helpful, and then two people from the other side. Uh, because the owner doesn't speak very good English, so I have a friend, one of my students, and she translated everything for me, and then her son's a lawyer, checking out all the details, you know. Um, but overall, here's the simple plan, and that is get something started, because uh, I think we really need a contemplative observatory, you know, a place where you can have people where they can come, there's a neat, simple, clean accommodation for them, food and all of that easily taken care of, not very expensive, and where I could spend a good deal of time, not just Skyping. And uh, so, so that's what we're attending to. And so the idea then uh, would be, is right now it's just a model, it's just an idea, and we don't have any concrete plans. But the land is quite big. It's a lot of land, 13 acres, it's a good spread. And all of it's good. And it looks at, all of it looks out over the ocean. And so... I received a suggestion from another friend of mine this morning that for in terms of the cabins, one model, which has worked very well, is people come and say, I'd like to build a cabin. And whenever they want to be in full retreat, they can be in that cabin for free. But, they, but it belongs to the center. And when they're not there, then other people can use it. And then the center can charge a modest rate. I want to give everything as inexpensive, inexpensive as possible. But there could be some others also a bit, a bit more money and deeper commitment and so forth. Uh, and if the, land, if the land seems to be big enough, there could be also some cottages that people say, okay, I'm donating this to the center, but maybe I'll give more or something. This is only for me to use. So when I'm not here, it won't have other people staying. It will be empty. Uh, but they would do that, of course, really only if they really plan to spend a lot of time there. You know? uh, and then the center itself, well, that would take some money, obviously. What I'm thinking of is a 40-room center a room for guest teachers, of course the dining hall, meditation hall, and then a couple of rooms for scientists. Uh, that really from the very beginning were saying, look, this is a contemplative research center, and we we're doing things here that may be very significant for a scientific study, and you're welcome to come here, and we can do collaborative research. Not just the scientists studying the yogis, but we're meeting as peers here with mutual respect. And so 
That's that. So a lot of flurry, a lot of activity, lots of conversation. Oh, I don't know how many emails over the last week. Lots uh, in multiple languages. Uh, but it looks really promising, really, really promising. And and it's not it also for the first time. It's not like well, you can raise three million dollars, can't you? Or you can raise six million dollars, can't you? Is anything in Santa Barbara? That's where you start. You start there, and then you see if you can fix it up like the way you want it. So. So that's that. So people listening by podcast, this is all being recorded, making available for you. Um, I check, also checked that the nearby Dharma Center, uh, it's been up for a long time, 30, 35, 40 years or so, and they've been running these, I think it's seven-year programs, Acharya programs, where they have people living there full-time, studying full-time. It's really a rather rigorous, um, how do you say, uh, uh, training in Dharma, learning texts and so forth. And they have found a way, I checked with again with Andrea, because he translated there for years, they have found a way, and it's time-tested now, for international students. So not only people from Italy, not only people from the European Union, but from anywhere, to be able to come there and get two-year visas. Because I've had from the beginning a really a passionate, you notice I'm passionate on some things, well, here's something I'm passionate about that is, I don't think any of you object to. I'm really passionate about it being an international center. That it, if it was in California, I didn't want it to be for California or just in the United States. I want it to be international, that anybody can come. And we have this neighbor, so all we need to do is, and it's going to be really easy, find out how did you do that, you know, what kind of paperwork is done. So people don't have to leave the continent or whatever every three months or six months. It really is a big, big hassle. So I think that's going to be really soluble. And so people could come and say, well, okay, I'm going to be here for two-year retreat for starters. And then, then they can extend if they still want to be in retreat. And then the vision is that I would spend a lot of time there, and I would have other teachers there as well, Western teacher, we'd have Tibetan teachers, at least coming and going. But His Holiness's vision is that, number one, within Buddhism, it's ecumenical, so it's not just Tibetan Buddhism. Within Tibetan Buddhism, all four schools, but also other schools of Buddhism. But the central theme is Shamatha and Vipassana. There isn't, there isn't any center like that, oddly enough. Um, but then His Holiness, and this is something only, I think only His Holiness would have thought of, and that is all right, Shamatha Vipassana. But then he said, and it was a personal conversation with me, he said, well, of course, there are non-Buddhist schools that also have their own Shamatha Vipassana traditions. We should include that too. So it's really just wide. It's like a flower that's opened up entirely to any contemplative tradition that has something that we would call Shamatha, and they call it whatever they like in their own tradition. And we would call Vipassana, that is inquiring into the nature of mind, consciousness, and so forth. They call it whatever they like. And so it would be a place where we could imagine an array of very qualified, will definitely be screening, that doesn't turn into a kind of silly or new age or whatever, new age in the pejorative sense, uh, really trying to bring the finest quality teachers in, meditation teachers, very sincere, highly qualified scientists to come in, uh, having some who, even on a rotating basis, maybe nobody would be living there year-round, for certainly for the foreseeable future, I wouldn't, but be coming in for a month here, three months there, two months there, running eight-week retreats there, CEV teacher training there, five-week program. Um, but then having this kind of multiple teachers coming in, the best model that I've seen that actually is already there and it works superbly is the Insight Meditation Society in Mary, Massachusetts. Started by very good people, very good motivation. And they have screening. That it's not just an open center anybody can pay you can come do here, but they've had a wide variety of teachers, Asian and Western, uh, and it's worked very, very well. Um, I know the people who run it, who founded it, and I see. I just don't see any ego. Like who's in, you know who's the big ego here? I just don't see any. It seems like a lot of people really devoted to Dharma, and inviting. I've I've taught there a couple of times, um, just for short things, you know. 
So that would be kind of the model, that it does have coherence. It's about, it's about something. It's not just a place that's for hire, uh, but it's not simply dominated by one or more teacher either. So they're setting the gold standard, really screenings, helping select, inviting here and there. Um, but this would be a center the likes of which doesn't exist anywhere. And I will say right now um, that one, one could view this in two different ways. That, oh, this is Alan Wallace's idea, and this is some center he'd really like to create, and then he'll be running it, and, and I hope we get the endorsement of His Holiness. And that's totally not it. Like, I can understand why people would view it that way, but that's absolutely, actually not it at all. Uh, my aspiration is I've been listening very closely to His Holiness, um, and so I want the proposal to be, because it's not finished yet, we'll be editing, drafting, polishing, and so forth, but I want it to be exactly what His Holiness wishes, exactly what he wants. Even if I feel, oh, I'm not sure I can do that, I'm not sure that's practical, well, it doesn't matter. I want it to be exactly what His Holiness wishes, and I'm willing to give any amount of effort in every way uh, to bring it to fruition, because His Holiness made it really clear to me, he thought it was really very, very meaningful. So if the land is there, then I will do everything I can to bring that. I will be kind of in samadhi, single-pointed, okay, this, we, now we push through. If His Holiness wants this, and I've written a letter to him now, kind of uh, hand-carried, insofar as you can bring an email, hand-carried, uh, with a friend of mine who's in Dharamsala right now, hopefully he'll get a chance to present this to His Holiness. But it's basically your holiness, I'm asking you for, for, here's the land, here's the proposal, which you're very familiar with. I modified it only slightly for Italy. We had one specifically for India. And moving in this direction, since we got nowhere in India, and no sign that we're getting and get, going to get anywhere, does doing this in Italy, does this have your blessing? And if so, I am not asking for your endorsement for Alan Wallace's idea, for Alan Wallace's center, but rather I want to offer this center to you and this will be your center, and you'll supervise it. And what I'm about to say, I say with total sincerity and total ease and relaxation, and that is, if you'd like me to take a very prominent role in that center, I will do so with great reverence. I think I said any role uh, in that center. And if once, once it's up and running, if you feel there's no need for me to be there at all, no role at all, I will be perfectly content. Yes, I will be. I will be. Then I... Cause I kind of like to meditate, and I don't need a center to meditate. I have a cottage already. So it's just, that's my aspiration. So this will take money, slowly, slowly, and at some point, a fairly significant amount to create a center like that, you know, the, the main lodge, um, but not an exorbitant amount. And, uh, and the, the neighboring village is already very open to this, very receptive. So it seems like an opportunity that I've been looking for for many years is finally manifested. Uh, not in my home country, but I've lived so many years in Europe already, and Italy, what can you say? It's Italy. You know? uh, what's not to like? You know? I mean, that's it. What's not to like? And I get California weather with, with Italy. <laughs> I don't speak Italian, but I like listening to it. And so that's the view. So um, everybody here, you're already on an email list, so as we make progress, or don't, maybe the whole thing will fall through, uh, you'll be informed if we make progress, it falls through, and then there's nothing to say. But anybody who's listening by podcast, if you're interested, if you think you might be able to contribute in some way, then, and if, if you think, if, if you're just simply listening, then you won't be on anybody's email list, and you wouldn't hear. So you can either just check the SBI website, or what I would encourage you to get on. You know, we don't, we don't, Santa Barbara Institute does not inundate people with emails. We don't flood you with those. 
rather parsimonious in that regard. So if you're interested either in knowing about it, possibly contributing to it, possibly meditating there, uh, then just write to Santa Barbara Institute, say you'd like to be on the email list, and then you'll find out as soon as anybody else does. But I've been very happy the last, especially since Saturday. And then it's happy and eager anticipation since Wednesday, thinking that was a good letter. That was a good letter. And I could not have written it by myself, got some very, very helpful input, extremely good input. And I felt, well, no matter what, that's good. The letter was well done. And then whatever comes, well, that'll be fine. But then when I was sitting up here, wow. <laughs> like a kid, you know, just got his bicycle. So they always wanted. So that's the news. That's the news. I think it could be quite wonderful. And I think it's a good place. A really, really wonderful place. And I think it has blessing. That was enormous for me. Uh, if at some point it becomes appropriate to just say, oh, this person, some of you may guess it already. If you do, that's fine. But the fact that this person was on the land, the person who was enormously intuitive, put that way, and said this. And then Lama Yeshe, of Lama Yeshe Lama Zupa, Andrea told me that many years ago, like 40 years ago, maybe even a bit more, 40 years ago or so, Lama Yeshe, when they were two together, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zupa, when they were traveling, Lama Yeshe was traveling around Italy looking for a place to establish a center. And they came to this, this hill, which Andrea, I've not seen it, I've just seen photos of it. But the hill, Andrea said, it's like a crouching elephant, like an elephant sitting down like that. And Lama Yeshe, I'm just quoting what Andrea said. I think he must have been there. And, and Lama Yeshe looked up at the hill and said, that's what I'd like right there. There was no land for sale. So they kept on looking around, looking around. And then 20 minutes later, or 20, by, by car, 20 minutes later, then they found this castle. And they purchased the castle. And that became Lama Tsongkhapa Institute. But Buzzy Wonder was up there. Well, that's the place that's for sale. But it's not, it's not, but the thing is, it's so totally relaxed because they're not advertising, they're not icing. And moreover, they bought it years ago for something else. And that fell through. But it already had the approval of the community to do something because it's agricultural land. It's vineyard country, it's wine country. Uh, but they already got the approval of the town council to do something that was not agricultural. That fell through. And so what we're doing is very much in the spirit of what they had earlier thought and fell through. So just many, many fortunate circumstances coming together and people with just the suitable skills. The two people in Italy, the two people I've been working with, we're very closely here. Just the skills, connections I don't have. Um, but other people do, and we work together. It's been really wonderful, been joyful. So I'm optimistic. Some grasp me. Some, some grasp me. I have to... I confess, Father, forgive me, I know what I'm doing. That's not what you're supposed to say. It? Um, it's very inspiring. And the fact that this person has been on the land uh, and really gave a blessing, like this is the place, uh, that, that I find quite extraordinary. So that's the news. Yeah. So if you'd like to make prayers, then that this could be a benefit, and not only to everyone in Europe, because of course it's part of the EU, so you stay anywhere you like in Europe with no visa, but then with a couple of visa, you know, a little bit of book, uh, paperwork, then having a place where you could finally come, and I will guarantee if we succeed, I'm going to try to keep the cost as low as possible, really accessible. And it's so much land that um, already Andrea and I have been talking about, how about doing some uh, organic gardening there, maybe an organic uh, orchard, really make the pl whole place come to life. Basically, if this is called a pure land, you know, except I'm not a Buddha. But that's what you try. You try to approximate, right? You do as close as you can. 
So I'm not a Buddha, and that's not a celestial field. It's called Italy. They have crime and corruption and so forth, like everywhere else. But why not envision a pure land, where it's just full of life, full of delicious food and fruit from the trees, and meditators, meditators achieving shamatha and moving along to the pashana, and, and then after you know, 15, 20 years, poof, rainbow body, and then a poof, rainbow body. And everybody's going to be wondering, what are you eating? What are you eating? <laughs> we want some of your food, you know. I want that food. It's got to be physical, right? It's got to be physical. So, um, so that's the vision. And I think it's a very pure vision. Um, and we have very good people working. I know a number of Western teachers I think would be very, very good. And so many Tibetan lamas. And then it's open. It's open. But you start from your strengths. So you start where you, you know people. You have some strengths. Uh, connections, whatever you want to call it, you know, and then you branch out, branch out, branch out. So. Yeah, so we can pray. You know, if this is a good vision, if it's pure, if it's only for benefit, if there's no ego anywhere from any side, we're just trying to do the best thing we can envision, just that simple. And if you, if you don't succeed, then you know you've acted with your best motivation to do the best possible thing, and if it doesn't happen, then you say, oh, it didn't happen. And then you do something else. Um, But if it does happen, oh, I think much benefit. So anybody listening, if you'd like to just offer your prayers for this, if it strikes you as good. Again, this is what I always feel about myself. I'm not trying to persuade people. Oh, you really should want this. This would really be good. Let me tell you, like a salesman, this is how this would be really good. Now, listen, because I'm going to really give you a pitch here. It isn't. Uh, This is a vision. And as people listen to it, it's either a shared vision or it's not. If it's not a shared vision, then follow your vision, whatever that may be, you know. But this is a vision. I'm very much here, a disciple of His Holiness, very much influenced by Him. Uh, if you feel it's a shared vision, uh, I was told it's called co-orientation, a very elegant term, where we're all facing in the same direction. That is, it's not facing, oh, let's, Alan Wallace is a great teacher. Let's face him. What would you, Alan? What would you like, Alan? We'd like to help you with your vision. What's your vision? We want to help you. I don't care for that. I have no interest in that. Because then it's really, it's ego-centered. I mean, call it what you will, but it is ego-centered. Whereas if it's shared vision, then we're all facing in the same direction. And some people will take, play one role, and other, pe- other people will play another role. But in the big analysis, who, who can really say if one person is writing a business plan, and another person's a Dharma teacher, and another person's knowing about gardening, and another person knows about landscape, another person knows How can you actually say that one's more important role? It doesn't seem to make any sense. You know? So I'd be a Dharma, if His Holiness would like me, if we succeed, His Holiness would like me to be involved, of course, I'll do, you know, draw my abilities. But shared vision, looking in the same direction, out over the, what is that sea to the west of Italy? It's not the Adriatic, it's the other side. Mediterranean. Okay, I could have figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> Looking out over the Azure Sea of the Mediterranean. Uh, quite gorgeous. So, that's it. Let's meditate, shall we? One session, quiet, silent meditation. Buenas. Let's return to the text. So we move down to the bottom of page 183. And this is continuing on concerning the four types of liberation. Four great types of liberation. So a scriptural source for the four great types of liberation is the primary 
Tantra on the reverberation of sound. It was a difficult translation, but reverberation seems to be a better translation. Primary Tantra on the reverberation of sound. It's one of the very often quoted, very important Dzogchen Tantras. So, your own awareness, and this word of awareness, of course, is Rikpa. Rikpa, so the implication is, in this context, pristine awareness. Your own awareness is free of conceptualization, free of thoughts. So it is endowed with the four great types of liberation. So it's worth pausing right there, that as long as your awareness is caught up in conceptualization, uh, and caught up in means grasping conceptualization and so forth and so on, uh, then these four great types of liberation will not manifest, you'll not be, get the benefit from them. Right? So the ability to sustain a flow of awareness free of thoughts, without conceptualization, would turn out to be quite important. And that's why the shamatha precedes Dzogchen practice. That you're not bringing your ordinary mind into Dzogchen practice and then finding, but you can't maintain a flow of, concept, a flow of awareness free of conceptualization more than a couple of seconds, then you can see, well, you're just not really ready for this practice. So, It isn't, but one who, that is free is endowed with the four great types of liberation. And now he unpacks each one very succinctly. The first is his primordial liberation. So as it is primordially liberated, which is the point of not modifying anything, there is no additional basis. So you see these brackets. Well, they're in the, uh, they're in the Tibetan text. So that's not something I added or Gyatrinamucha added. They actually have something like brackets in, sometimes in Tibetan texts. So what does this mean, to be primordially liberated? That you don't need to fix anything, to modify, to remedy anything. And so, the point, so, as it is primordially liberated, there is no additional basis. That is, there's nothing you need to look outside to, as, it, like, as we see in the Pali Canon, take no external refuge. There's nothing else you need, like look outside for thoughts, mental afflictions, and so forth, simply to release themselves, they're primordially liberated, so don't look outside. That's the first one. It's quite clear. This will be all quite clear, I think, and doesn't need much commentary. So, the second type of liberation is liberated by itself, as it is liberated by itself, which is the point of not investigating, there are no antidotes. So this is a very important point, the kind of the distinction, as you, in the classic sequence, the shamatha, the vipassana, and then you're moving into Mahamudra Dzogchen, right? either one, and they're very, very similar. That you know shamatha, no, no comment needed. Vipassana by its very nature, and really this is true in all Buddhist schools, whether it's the Satipatthana Sutra, whether it's Nagarjuna, the perfection of wisdom, or the Vipassana as you see it played out or presented in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions, <coughs> does entail some active inquiry. Shamatha doesn't, generally, but the Vipassana by nature, almost by definition, it's not simply gazing or simply being present or simply being mindful. Um, it really does table an investigation. Uh, but I'm thinking now, the text that's in my mind right now is the one that, if things go as expected, I'll teach next year in an eight-week retreat. Um, in an eight-week retreat, it will be the um, kind of a flow of, of shamatha mahamudra dzogchen. And so there's a brilliant, it really is quite an extraordinary chapter on vipassana in this text. It's called The Spacious Path of Freedom. You're investigating, really probing in. Some has a very kind of Zen quality to it. It's so crisp, so sharp, and probing right into the nature of the mind with a primary emphasis being on uh, fathoming 
the emptiness of inherent nature of your own mind. That's a big deal. So rather than just doing that for two pages and say, okay, now we move on, this has got a whole chapter for it. But the point here being that at the very end of the chapter, as I recall, I'm not quite sure about the details here, then I think it's Saraha, the great Indian master of Mahamudra, then he points to the importance, all right, when, is enough, when enough is enough, it's enough. And that is when you're investigating, but then some insight comes. Don't keep on investigating. There's a time then you've investigated, some breakthrough, some opening, some insight has arisen, and now just, just let it be. And you're not spacing out, you're not. What you're not doing is you're not disengaging, abandoning or distancing yourself from the per- earlier, earlier investigation. It's investigating to the point of some clear insight arising, and then just releasing with no more investigation. And, it's, and then you're just letting that insight, you're releasing into the insight. You're not cutting it off or turning your back on it. You're releasing into the insight. So that, that insight, that breakthrough, can really flow into your being. And then it goes very deep. It really saturates uh, your mind. And your view of reality shifts. So it's radically not like uh, simply acquiring some belief system. Now I, now I believe in the five paths and the ten bhumis, and I can talk about them and so forth. That's all good. But it's not simply learning Buddhism. So you can talk about it and maybe have a lot of faith and belief in it. But rather, when the insight comes, it actually does shift the way phenomena appear to you because you're viewing them by way of this fresh insight. So a point for just releasing investigation. Releasing investigation. Well, by the time you're in Dzogchen, it's assuming, as we've seen right here in the text, you've already done your, your investigation. That's already done. That the, What needed to be cut through, what needed to be broken apart, dissolved, dismantled, already been done. And so now we're in this phase, these four liberations, where there's no investigation needed and therefore no antidotes to be applied. Vipassana, like meditation and emptiness, is an antidote, right? Classic. It's a, it's a mode of investigation. You, ha- you first learn about it you, through hearing. You reflect upon it, see whether it makes sense. You work with it. You really get your hands into it. And if you come to a point of clarity, then you go into meditation. Uh, so it's, it's assumed that you've already done that. And so here then, uh, I was just going to finish the thought. So that whole process of investigation, is there an inherently existent self? How does this self, self or let's say mind, the mind has attributes. Does the, does the mind exist by its own inherent nature or not? And you investigate, you probe, you probe, you probe, until you gain the insight. And then that probing itself is the antidote for that which is diametrically opposed. And what was already there, which is diametrically opposed, is grasping onto the existence of, let's say, an inherent existence mind. That's already there, right? That's conate, by the way, among the three types of ignorance. This grasping to the inherent nature of things. Oh, you don't have to learn that. You can't blame the materialists or theists or anybody on that one. You're born with that one. So there's the problem. It's kind of a deeply, it's now, now it's an interesting point. It's conate. You're born with it. Generally speaking, I think in modern evolutionary biology and so forth, if you were born with a certain trait, well, then, then that's your trait. You, you have that for the rest of your life, you know, like your DNA. Well, here's something, and this is classic Buddhism, that you are born with a certain delusional trait of reifying, grasping onto the inherent nature of phenomena. You didn't learn it from anybody. Not there. It's not there because you're a human being. It's deeper than that. And so it's deeply ingrained, it's conate, but you can eradicate it. It can be dispelled 
for good, right? And so there we see clearly there's the problem and there's the antidote. The problem of delusion is reifying, let's say, the nature of the mind or your own personal identity, and the remedy is coming in and challenging that which you're reifying. Does it really, that is, this reified entity that you're clinging to, you're, ch- you're bringing this, this remedy in, this sword or this hammer or whatever you like to call it, to see whether or not it exists. So they're diametrically opposed, and the more the insight comes in, then the more the delusion fades away, diametrically opposed, right? Well, that's applying an antidote to a problem, and there's a really good reason for that. So in Shantideva's text, for example, the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, one of the longer chapters in the text is uh, on patience. Well, he just gives you one remedy after another after another. What do you do with anger, with hatred, resentment, and so forth? Well, view this way, view this way, try this, try this, come in from multiple angles. Those are antidotes to a mental affliction that, of course, is terribly harmful. Uh, Unless you just save it just to be launching against other mental afflictions and so on. And so that's the antidote. But here, context is everything. And this is why, why it would be quite catastrophic. If you just skip that, you just would, I just want to know Dzogchen. I don't know that other stuff. Nagarjuna no, sounds really complicated. And Shamata, oh, that sounds really hard. I'm like, I can't do that. So, but no, I, I, I really just like Dzogchen. Let's just do Dzogchen. Because I've heard about it. Buddhahood without meditation sounds really good. Because I don't have much time. And so if one skipped over those and said, well, I'll just, I'll just go to this part. I really, I really like what I'm reading here. It's kind of like a menu. Don't need the hors d'oeuvre, don't need that menu. No, I, I really like desserts. This, sounds, this really is tasty. Yummy, yummy. And so you do that, well, then you'll miss everything. You won't be getting the ground. You won't be getting the main practice. You won't be getting anything. You're practicing something that on the surface, surface level looks like Dzogchen, and it's not at all Dzogchen, not even, re- not even close. So this is assuming you've already done the investigation, and you've already applied the antidotes. So at this point, there is no investigation and there are no antidotes. And what was that? It's, li- it's self-liberating. Self-liberating, okay? But that means, of course, you're viewing from the perspective of Rikpa. This is all assuming that that's it. So therefore, what would you apply antidotes to? Then we have this instantaneous liberation, as it is instantly liberated. And now the gloss on that, which is the point of leaving it in its own state, right? In its own state, it just instantly releases itself all by itself. As it is instantly liberated, it vanishes right where it is seen. So again, from the perspective of Rikpa, seeing whatever thoughts, images, afflictions, whatever arises, they just come and then they, they just release themselves. Just poof. And then finally, the complete liberation, as it is completely liberated, there is no exertion. So you've heard that many times over the last seven weeks. And that is met. Nothing to strive for, nothing to, yeah, no effort, no effort. Quite clear. So, we move on a little bit. The next, again, next citation, the Pearl Rosary states, and, and you see, he's just really, as I, as I recall, I think he's going to do this pretty much for the rest of the text, which ends, the root text ends on 190, so we'll finish probably tomorrow. So, the Pearl Rosary states, as it is primordially liberated, it is eternally exalted. I think self-explanatory, right? And that is exalted. It has these extraordinary qualities, noble qualities, sublime qualities, but it's always had them. So this is a, a central point in Dzogchen, and that is you're not seeking to cultivate qualities you don't have, but re- reveal qualities that are already there. I think it's quite familiar now. You'll get a lot of repetition, but we're almost finished too. So it, as it is self-liberated, objective conditions are exhausted, 
And Rinpoche, in Gatra Rinpoche's um, commentary, I think, as I recall, was quite helpful here. For the, this is for self-liberation. Causes and conditions have totally vanished. Yeah, that is helpful. So once again, everything is a matter of perspective, right? From your perspective, from the perspective of Rikpa, then there are no causes and conditions. Rikpa is outside of time. It's in the fourth time. Causes and conditions are always playing out through time. Independence upon this, then that occurred, then that occurred, and so forth. But Rikpa is in the fourth time, outside of the context of time, and therefore the whole issue of causality, which is so utterly fundamental to Buddhism as a whole, we've come to that point again and again, uh, well, they've totally vanished, as, R- as Rinpoche says in his commentary. And here he says, objective conditions, causes, conditions, exhausted. And then we have instantaneous liberation, as it is instantly liberated, appearances are pure. Okay? So again, the, the contrast be- between engaging in stage regeneration practice, where you, again, I know it's repetition, but you dissolve everything at emptiness, dhammadhatu, out of that, then with the power of, with faith, with insight and imagination, faith in the Buddha, in the, uh, Buddha nature, and then insight into emptiness and imagination of really creating pure appearances, imagining purity, imagining purity of yourself, your body, speech, and mind, and everything around you. In stage of generation, you're doing this with effort, doing something, and what you're bringing forth is a pure vision. Whereas in Dzogchen, this is occurring spontaneously. That is, when you can view phenomena from the perspective of Rikpa, then all these appearances liberate themselves, and those appearances are themselves from your perspective. They're pure. They're by nature pure. Not because you're imagining, you're actually seeing it. So you can see then that the whole stage of generation and the stage of completion are really basically leading up to Dzogchen, the fourth empowerment, the word empowerment, where there's nothing more to be done. Now, the classic procedure, the really step-by-step procedure, which has proven itself to be effective countless times, is to take all of this very step-by-step, you know, and that is you're following your more Sutrayana teachings, Bodhicharvatara, Lamrim, Lamde, the many, many texts of this sort, words of my, of my perfect teacher, and so on, and step by step, cultivating the renunciation, the bodhicitta, the perfections, perfection of wisdom, and then going and, and receiving empowerment, doing your preliminary practices, and then receiving empowerment, and then practicing stage of generation, practicing stage of completion. And then upon having gained major strides in all of those, then... You come to this, the texture, Dzogchen practice. Because you've had everything, everything from the, the, the first time you sit down to meditate or hear your first Dharma teaching, it's all preparation for this. This, comes, this point is made really clearly in the Vajra essence from Padmasambhava, that um, all of the Dharma is just for this. All of the Dharma. Now from the Dzogchen perspective, from the Sutrayana perspective that Geshe Rapna was talking about, he can say all of Dharma is either leading up to bodhicitta, is bodhicitta, or falls out of bodhicitta. It's beautiful. Dzogchen perspective, everything's for the sake of, of realizing who you are. Everything, every aspect, every prostration, every mani omani pemehung, everything is all for this one thing. And uh, Padmasambhava, in this large text, which I just finished polishing a few days ago, the translation, um, he, it's really quite, quite a remarkable passage um, in fact, yeah, this is, you know, because I'm not in a hurry now, and this is, not, this is not rambling. This is very germane to what we're doing here. Um, but he, he, he repeats again and again the same theme, but with little tiny variations. Uh, he said, for example, if, if one person has 
been practicing stage regeneration for so, so long, really long, pers- long time, and another person has been engaging in robbing banks or something like that. They didn't have banks, but you get the idea. One person totally devoted practice, another person totally not. And if they both gain realization of rikpa, there's no difference whatsoever. No difference whatsoever. Once you've realized rikpa, well, oh, okay, well, then that's it. Now the past is gone. So, and then it, but he gives example after example after example, the really arduous person training for so long, the other person goofing off. And so, if you one were rather silly, then one might think, oh, well, I, I get it, just kind of hope to be lucky. You know, and don't mess around with all the shamatha, vipassana, bodhicitta, and so forth, just you know, hope to be lucky. Uh, but of course, that is silly. But he's making that statement, but it, he makes it so many times that once you've realized rikpa, everything else before go, it vanishes. Because now you've realized this, well, now that's it. You know? um, so I found that quite remarkable. But the, the central point of all of that, that's in the context of tekchu in the Vajra essence, is that all of Dharma really is designed for this one thing. And when you come into Dzogchen, never take your eyes off that. There's only one thing to do, one thing, that pearl of infinite value for which you'd sacrifice anything, the, per- the pearl of great value, uh, that is to discover who you are, rikpa. Everything's for that. And so as soon as you venture into the practice, don't let anything distract you. Because if you fall, oh, I tried Dzogchen for a while, but I think I'll go back and I'll do more prostrations or I'll do this and so forth. See that you're well prepared, and then when you enter in, totally go for it. This is it. This is it. This is what it's all about, is to realize the Dharmakaya within, maybe some people call it the kingdom of heaven within, it reminded me a little bit, because I've read this and I've read it so many times, having translated it. But there's a parable, it's quite a nice parable, um, if I can say so, maybe it sounds bombastic. But in the New Testament, the, uh, the, the man who owns the, uh, the vineyard, and at 6 o'clock in the morning, vineyard, yes, vineyard, I think, in the six, early, early morning, it's like a 12-hour day, they, they really worked them back then. And so the, the parable, it's a nice one, and it's directly relevant. Again, I'm not just rambling for the sake of killing time. Uh, but... A man owning a vineyard, he needs to have call in day laborers to maybe it's time to harvest grapes. And so some guys who are you know, itinerant farm workers, they show up. They show up at 6 o'clock in the morning to start a long day's work, and they agree on a price. So, so many, and he gives them a fair, a fair wage for putting in a whole day of work. Right? Uh, but then the parable kind of really plays out a bit. It's something like three hours later. And then another guy, another group of um, migrant workers or whatever, day laborers, they come in and they said, oh, do you have any, any work you could give us? And he said, yeah, sure, happy. You have plenty of vineyard here. And he gives them the same wage. And then three hours later, another group comes in. Do you have any work? Sure. Okay. And he gives them the same wage. They, they all agree. Each time they all agree. And then three o'clock, another group comes in. Oh, well, we're coming at the end of the day, but do you have any work? Oh, sure, come in. And he gives them the same wage. And so, and everybody agreed all along. The first people, they agreed, yeah, this is a fair wage, you know. And then the second one, well, yeah, we're quite happy with that. The third, yeah, I'm very happy with that. Oh, well, thank you, you know. But then at the end, towards the end of the day, maybe that final group came in. Um, then the first group, then they went to the boss and said, hey, this isn't fair. You know, we've already been working for nine hours, and these people are only going to work for three hours. And so, hey, that's not fair at all. I mean, we sh- you know, you shouldn't give them the same amount. And, the, uh, and the, the, uh, the master of the land said, but did you not agree from the very beginning that that was a fair wage? So why, is it now, why has it become unfair? 
and there's not really a way to answer that. You know. I gave what I wish to give. You know. And so I think actually when I, when I read this in the Vajra Essence, it really reminded me of that. That maybe you've strived diligently, maybe you've spent 20 years in retreat. You know. Like Geshe Zuppa, maybe it's not a bad example. But Geshe Zuppa, as far as people knew, he didn't, he didn't go off for years in retreat. I don't know if he ever went off to retreat. You know? um, but then when he passed away, almost seven days in the clear light, well, Genlam Rimba spent, gosh, who knows how long, 35 years maybe? Full-time retreat. Full-time retreat. The yogi is yogi. Pure monk, wonderful scholar. Beloved lama, he's one of my lamas, but also clearly already a friend. Um, and after kind of like all of his adult life spent in retreat, he died, and he spent five and a half days in clear light. And so one might say, well, that's not fair. He, he, he was teaching in a university you know, teaching classes and so forth, and you spent, you were the yogi yogi living in incredible austerity. And that was another point of the Vajra essence. One person going through tremendous austerity, the other person no austerity at all. But when you realize, but then it's all the same. You know? But Yenlam Rimba, did somebody force him into that lifestyle? You know, like that? No. That's what he wished to do. He wished to, that was his passion, that was his joy, that was his vocation. So I think the, the, parallel, the parallel from the New Testament parable, which I learned when I was a kid, and this one, I think it's actually quite, quite close. That when you get there, everything's even. Everything's even. Okay. So we continue a bit. So, as it is infinitely liberated, appearances are pure. As it is liberated from extremes, the four alternatives are purified. It's liberated from all extremes, all conceptual extremes, right? And the four alternatives, you'll see in the commentary, it's the classic four alternatives that you see in Nagarjuna and many places else. Uh, and that is Rikpa, Rikpa itself. Or from the perspective of Rikpa, the phenomena you're, you're perceiving. But let's just say Rikpa. Does Rikpa exist? No. Because you should put it in a conceptual category. It doesn't fit in that conceptual category. Oh, so you're saying it, 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 it's not true that it exists. Okay, you mean it doesn't exist? Well, no, not that. Ah, I see, we're mystical here. You mean it both exists and doesn't exist? No. Oh, okay, okay now, thank, thank goodness. It neither exists nor doesn't not exist. No. Well, that's it. You just ran through all the categories. Those are, the, those are called the four, four alternatives or what have you. The four, classic kind of try, way, try, the four classic ways of trying to make sense to conceptualize, to wrap your conceptual mind around, to make sense of. Now I've got it. Yeah, I, I figured it out. Now I figured it out. Sure, I'm, I'm definitely going to rec recognize Rikpa now because I'm, I'm, holding, I'm holding a good, clear idea of what it is. No, you don't because it transcends all of those four alternatives, none of the above. And then as it is liberated from singularity, it is empty of multiplicity. Well, this again is just one of the the pairs of these conceptual extremes. So Rikpa, when you're resting in Rikpa. Are you resting in your own Rikpa? It does say Rang Rik, your own Rikpa. So are, is it one? I mean, it's just one? Uh, and is it really one? Like, you know, the one. Uh, the one. Are you realizing the one Rikpa? The one Rikpa that pervades all of space and time, the ultimate ground of reality, the God behind the Godhead, however one wants to uh, view it. Is it one? And well... No, it's not. One is just one less than two and one more than zero. So, no. 
but by the very fact that you see that it's not one, it's also not not one. That is, it doesn't it doesn't fit into any of the categories, either one, either singular or plural, either one or many, neither neither one. So that's that simple point of again liberated from singularity. It is empty of, empty of multiplicity as well. Okay, that's clear. Which means, obviously, when as you're resting in Rikpa, as you're deep, this is that phase where you've had some insight, some taste, some realization of Rikpa, and you're simply trying to release all the veils, all the grasping, all the conceptualization that goes with it. There's nothing to be done. And so it's from that perspective, just as a reminder. And then the last little bit that we'll read today, that I will read today. Thus, since all appearances and sounds, so we see this is not only your thoughts. This is, again, a difference between this type of meditation and settling the mind in this natural state. Clearly some parallels. Clearly some parallels. Very strong parallels. But to emphasize this, it may not be entirely clear. If it is, well, you have to hear it again. In taking the mind as a path or settling the mind in its natural state is a shamatha practice. Right? Shamatha practice. Therefore, because it is a shamatha practice, it is selective. And that is you're attending to this and not to that. And you're not attending, to, at least not, not for any long duration, you're not attending to something in the sensory fields because that will lock your attention into the desire realm and you never achieve shamatha. You might look at a stick stone or something like that for a while, but you have to move on. And so in, in this taking the mind as a path, you're attending to one out of six domains of experience. I know this is all familiar. You're focusing on that more and more single-pointedly. The other senses, sounds, smells, and tastes, and so forth, they fade out, fade out, the mind gets quieter, and your mind dissolves into the substrate consciousness. So that's how that operates. But now when you're resting in this Buddhahood without meditation, when you're resting in Rikpa Choksha, just letting be from the perspective of Rikpa. Okay? It's not just open presence. It's, op- it's a nice word, open presence, but it's open presence from the perspective of Rikpa. Uh, it, it, I, I've said it before and I'm saying it again. When you're doing this, then there is no selection. You're not directing your attention outwards or inwards. You're not directing it to the space of the mind or to some other. It's just like, just wide open, wide open, totally devoid of any kind of selection or preference or direction. But it also, it's not just resting in itself, kind of withdrawing from all appearances. It's just totally open, just open presence. It's a nice phrase, chok-chok, or the chok-chok, the word really simply means just letting it be. Just, just, just be present. That would be a nice way also. Just be present. But that clearly doesn't imply any directionality. If that's what you're doing, not kind of your attention's, what your attention is not doing is looking, oh, there's a thought. Oh, there's an image. Oh, there's a tingling in my knee. It's not doing that. You know? uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but that's not, that's not shamadha, vipassana, dzogchen, mahmud, or any of the above. This is not moving about. I mean, it's just resting in rikpa. But this, if you're just resting in rikpa, then whatever appears to rikpa is what you're viewing from the perspective of rikpa. I know that's, that's circular, but that is what's happening. So as you're simply open there, then in that field of open awareness, of open presence, uh, then a thought might arise. And then, you, then a sound may come in. And then a tingling in your knee, and so forth but they're simply all arising in this one space, and it is the space of Dhammadhatu. Right? And so as it's rising then, if you can say something is true, like these four modes of liberation, if these are true for thoughts, they're going to be true for anything else. 
that arises in this dharmadhatu, or this space of awareness, the space that you're attending to from the perspective of rikpa. And so that's why he says right here that appearances, visual appearances, smells, tastes, touch, tactile sensations, sounds, here probably is primarily emphasizing visual appearances, since all appearances, let's say visual, and sounds remain in the four types of liberation. In other words, they are also of the same, have the same qualities as thoughts, which have the four types of liberation as well. Yeah? They are not bound by anything. They're all imbued with each of these four types of, li of liberation. They're not bound by anything. They're not locked in. They're not categorized. And they're not liberated by anything else. They're not liberated by anything. By anything. That is, anything outside themselves. All just this rangdol, this self-liberation. Everything self-arises from its own state and is self-liberated. Again, just to back up, because we're running, we're running right towards the end, a little bit of repetition may not harm, unless you remembered everything I've said. And that is, uh, if you look in the Nagarjuna, brilliant Nagarjuna analyzing causality. Here's another tetrad, uh, whatever it may be. A, a flower. Flower's nice. There's a flower. There's a flower right in front of me. That's true. Okay? Now, if we assume, kind of, because we do generally assume this, that the flower is actually inherently existent, that is, there is a flower from its own side. I mean, it's there. I mean, touch it. It's there from its own side. If we assume what seems to be obviously and incontrovertibly true, there's a flower right in front of me, and it was already there, and it's there prior to and independent of any conceptual designation whatsoever, because it's really there, which means it really has its own attributes, its own borders, its own qualities, its own parts, it, let's say a single flower, just make it clear, just what a single flower, there's a single flower, and I'm seeing it's one thing. I mean, everybody can see that, right? It's a single flower. And, we see, and then we can count the number of petals. It's five, six petals. And then we can see other attributes that it has, the, the shades and so forth. It, has this, it, it this one thing, has, has a stem, which I'm holding. And it's clearly, I'm, I'm touching it, I'm holding it. It's so obvious it, it must exist from its own side. And it is there right now. And then we bring in the Nagarjuna analysis, okay? Let us assume that's right. That flower that has these has these qualities, these parts, these attributes. Um, where did it arise from? Did it arise from itself? When it first arose, when that, when that flower that we've just been holding, all targeting that flower that inherently exists and holding its own characteristic, um, where did it come from? Where did it emerge from? And if, the, if one poses, well, maybe it emerged from itself, then the Nagarjuna answer comes, but then there's no reason for it to emerge because it's already there. That doesn't make any sense. So not self-emergence, not self-arisen, not self-arisen. Because why would it have to arise when it's already there? It really doesn't make any sense. But then, of course, the, inter the only one interesting one, at least from my limited perspective, is kind of the obvious, well, of course, it didn't rise from itself. Uh, it arose from other, other things. It arose, this inherently existent flower here, it arose from other things that are not a flower, like fertilizer and moisture and seed and the gardener. Probably, I'm sure this needed a gardener, and so there are many, many causal conditions. Uh, and so independence on all those causal conditions, none of which were this flower. They're all other. And there's a primary cause and the many cooperative conditions. Then independence upon all of those other conditions, then the flower, this inherently existent flower, arose from other things that are not it. Now that sounds really reasonable, right? Uh, but now let's just go 
let's come right back and say, yeah, but we are talking about an inherently existent flower here. An inherently one that's absolutely there. One single thing that has a, has a stem, has petals, has colors, has texture, has shape, has smell, and so it has a taste too, I'm sure. You taste it, it's going to taste like something. And so if we keep on holding in mind what are we really analyzing here, what we're analyzing is that inherently existent flower, which is one thing that has many attributes. And we say, okay, now, but now let's be very careful. Because there's the obvious alternative. It really arose from things that were really other than it, and many of them. Okay? So now exactly when did that occur? When did many things give rise to one thing? That one thing is the flower that has all those attributes. Because the many things are not one thing, they're many things. And the flower is one thing that has many attributes. So exactly when was it, and how did it occur, that that one thing arose? And did many things become one thing? How does that happen? Because if many things are many things, then they're inherently many things. But if you have a whole bunch of things that are inherently many, they can't become inherently one. Because many things are not one thing. Many people are not one person. And if you say many people are a group of people, but you say, but that, but that group, that's just in your mind, that's just a label. You know, many people don't become one entity. It's still, it's just going to be, you can say, oh, it's a group, but that's just, that's just a little, little dropping of a word that you're designating on something that is not one, that is many. So exactly how does it become? Well, when one really checks this, I'm not going to elaborate this, people study this for months, um, but if you really try it, you go very deeply and try to really probe in how could it be possible that many inherently existent causes and conditions could actually transform into one inherently existent entity objectively, all by the, and you're just passively observing it, then you see, actually, that can't take place. It can't take place just naturally, like a flower growing. Or if you say, you're building a house. This is an easier one a little bit. You're building a house, so you have all the lumber, all the, all the supplies, everything you need, all the ingredients, the building materials for the house. And you have an empty plot of land. And you have all these bricks and timber and nails and how many things to build this house? And they're all piled over here. You can look over there, look on the left where all the, all the building supplies are and ask anybody, is there a house there? Is there a house there? And they'll ask, well, why are you asking that question? That's lumber, those are bricks, those are nails, those are, that's a cement. No, I, I don't know why you asked that question, but no, that's not a house. There's no house there. It's what it is. That's cement, that's lumber, and so forth. It's no house. Okay, we're all clear. Then you look at the empty, em, empty plot. Let's ask the dumb question. Is there a house there? No, there's no house there. Okay, so now the worker bees get to going. They start, they lay in the concrete, the foundation, and so forth. And then you can say, okay, the foundation is laid. Is there a house there? No, that's not a, a foundation is not a house. Okay, well, let's put up some walls. One wall. Is there a house there? Well, put up two walls. Is there a house there? No, I mean, two walls is two walls on a concrete base. It's not a, put up three walls. Is there a house there yet? Put up four walls. No, that's, that's four walls looking up at the sky. That's not a house. Put on half the roof. Is that a house? <laughs> a house, one thing, right? Because you're not building many houses. You're only trying to build one house. And okay, put, put the other part of the roof on. Is that a house? Because there's no furniture. It's just four walls. <laughs> You see, 
when you say there's a house there, a single entity, a house, one entity house, you can see that why couldn't you say that's a partially built house? Three walls. Yeah, this, is, this is the partially built house. Then it's a house. It's a house, it's a single thing, and it's not, not completed yet. Or the house burns down. I, I saw this really vividly in one, just a news clip, where there was a fire in California. And uh, the fire torched, just burned to the ground a number of cottages up in the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And there was one they showed, and they showed the couple that owned it. And it was just, it was a really intense forest fire, so it burned it down. All that was there was just kind of the, the foundation, concrete, I presume, or cement, and then the chimney, a, a stone chimney. And that was it. And the, uh, and the owners were saying, well, we'll rebuild, but here's our house. Here's our house. It burned down. And they're pointing, this is our house. It got really burned. And they're pointing to a chimney. Yeah. And who's going to refute them? Yeah, our, our house really got really burned, but we're going to repair it. We're going to repair it. You know? And they're pointing to a basis of designation they're already designating as a house. And who can tell them they're wrong? They like that house. They don't want to build a new house. They want to repair the old one. And that's their choice. Right? Ob ob objective reality doesn't say, I'm sorry, but there's no house here. That's called a chimney. You know, it doesn't happen. So that one entity, the house, when did it come into existence? Objectively. And how much damage do you need to do to a house before you say it's no longer a damaged house? It's no longer a house. And then you see, you've got to have a subject here. It doesn't happen. It never happens, purely objectively. In which case, the obvious answer, does it inherently arise from other, is not true. Because there's no point in time when you can objectively believe and say, ah, right then, I just saw it. That's when the one house arose. Or the fire burns, burns, burns. Ah, right now, there's no, no longer a house there. There is no time where you can objectively say there was and now there isn't. And that's for constructive things, exactly when a flower. When do you say there's a flower there? Is a bud a flower? How about a little green one? Is that a flower? How much does the bud need to open before it's a flower? A flower, a single thing. So... That's, this is all a tangent, but it is important. Uh, and that is in the Nagarjuna, the Madhyamaka, phenomena do not inherently arise, they're not self-arisen. They don't inherently arise from other, they don't inherently arise from self and other, and they don't inherently arise from neither self nor, nor other. I, again, another tetrad. Um, and so that's what, but here, one can say, but, okay, but this is clearly incompatible with Dzogchen, uh, with, uh, with Nagarjuna. Right? I mean, here it is. I mean, self-arisen, that's exactly what Nagarjuna refutes. Phenomena are not self-arisen. It would be totally redundant. They don't have to arise. They're already there. And what does our text say? Um, everything self-arises. And from the Nagarjuna perspective, you say, well, that's just completely false. Nothing self-arises. And that's quite true horizontally. But from the perspective of Rikva, that's true because you're outside the field of causality, phenomena just, they're just there. They just spontaneously emerge from your perspective. Everything self-arises from its own state and is self-liberated. So self-liberated is just the counterpart of self-arises. Self-arises and then self-liberates. Whatever appears is free of the three extremes of birth, cessation, and abiding. So ultimate reality is self-appearing. 
ultimate reality, dhammata, dhammadatu, is self-appearing. Therefore, due to the, to, the, to the guru simply pointing this out, when you're really ripe, the guru can simply tell you this, one more pointing out instruction. You see the, it gets higher and higher and higher, the pointing out instruction. Simply due to the guru simply pointing this out, once you know ultimate reality to be self-appearing, ultimate reality is emptiness, dhammatatu, to be self-appearing. Well, now we have appearances. We have emptiness is form, form is emptiness. Apart from emptiness, there is no form. Apart from form, there is no emptiness. We, we know ultimate reality to be self-appearing from this Rikpa perspective. Once you know that, you'll realize appearances and consciousness as ultimate reality. Again, it's Heart Sutra all over again, but from a Dzogchen perspective. That appearances and the awareness of the appearances, they are both nothing other than ultimate reality. Dhammadhatu. So from the Rikpa perspective, there's a primordial non-duality. They've never been separated. They've never been united because they've never been apart. This primordial indivisibility, non-duality of Dhammadhatu and Dhammakaya. Primordial. And therefore you see all appearances, nothing other than pristine awareness, nothing other than effulgences or displays of pristine awareness, all appearances is nothing other than Amadatu. So, something like that. It's good to have these seeds, even if the seeds of this afternoon's teaching, even if they don't germinate for six months or six years or 60 lifetimes, the seeds are there. And then if you simply go about your practice, they germinate. And you'll hear them again, hopefully. And then just gradually, then you'll see, ah, it was good I heard about that 10 years ago. Because the seeds were there, and now that I'm really ripe for this, then the seeds are already there. They're already germinating. They've been germinating for the last 10 years as I was going about the practices that I could really engage with. Uh, and so that's when, why one looks ahead and doesn't keep everything regimented. I'm not there yet. I won't look. When he was teaching this text, uh, I asked him about, you know, how do we practice? I mean, it's all practice. This is not simply a text for scholars. It never was. And uh, I asked him, you know, how, how do we go about practicing this? And he said, Practice all of it. Uh, practice all of it. Practice all of it. That is, don't just get stuck. Don't just get here and say, okay, I'm not finished yet. And then, you know, refuse to go on. Stay, be where you are, but keep on looking ahead. Because just as shamato or samadhi enhances ethics and wisdom enhances samadhi, as ethics enhances samadhi and samadhi enhances wisdom, as there's that kind of that synergy among the three higher trainings, likewise for these. Your vipassana practice will enhance your shamatha. Your dzogchen practice will enhance your vipassana. They all will work together as you keep on emphasizing the primary practices that are just exactly appropriate for where you are in your practice. And then you achieve that sooner or later, especially if you have a really beautiful place in Italy, you know, <laughs> conducive environment, uh, which turns out to be enormously important because I've been leading people in long-term retreats now for seven years, and I can tell you this unequivocally true. I don't know, right now it's about 30 of them in full-time retreat, but over the last seven years it has to be more like 50 or so, because obviously not everybody stays in retreat. But I've been watching this for seven years, and then my own experience. I've been, you know, first long retreat was 34 years ago. Um, what I can say is, from my own experience, and then watching all the rest of them, and Rosa will, Rosa will bear me out, and, and also, yeah, environment. Really difficult, really difficult to find a truly conducive environment where you can stay and not you know, run out of money or run out of everything 
to a conducive environment that's truly conducive, especially for shamatha, because that's the one time you're really in an, in an incubator. Once you've achieved shamatha, you can go wherever you like. You're bringing your meditation cave with you, right? But until, if you're really working on shamatha, then it's that phase right there, more than any other phase. That's the time you really want a really conducive environment. You want to have the right spiritual friends, good weather, healthy food, a teacher accessible, and keep kind of the momentum that, I can't say everybody here, but many people here, the momentum that's built over seven weeks, now almost eight weeks, that that momentum doesn't taper off. If you go off and then you're off by yourself, don't have access to a teacher, don't have spiritual friends around, maybe the environment's not that conducive, and so on, then the momentum can get a bit frayed, you know, kind of like get diluted. So this is why. This is why I've been striving for so hard. I mean, I have my own cabin. I'm set. But I'd like to do something that's not just for me, uh, to create an environment there. So the momentum that builds up over an eight-week period, for example, for those who have the, for the, the inner and outer mandala are suitable, right, that you can then simply continue. So just to daydream a little bit, imagine this all happens. And we come for an eight-week retreat in the main lodge, and then some people know this is a real possibility. Before they come, they know that if the retreat goes well, they find it really beneficial and so forth, that they, they walk 100, 100 yards. And they move into an empty cabin. And the teacher's still there. And it doesn't have to me. This is absolutely not personal. Any qualified teacher who can really help you through the practice. But you come from a retreat, and then you walk 100, 200 yards into your own little cabin, and you know you can stay there for two years, and maybe, who knows, maybe we can get the organic garden and so forth, so even you come with no money. You can work for a couple of hours in something that will not disturb your mind. Organic gardening, looking after, a, looking after an orchard, whatever. Imagine that. You will put in a couple of hours of nice, healthy, good, grounded, natural labor, taking care of nurturing the earth, getting benefit from the earth, serving other people, and you still have 10, 12, 14 hours a day to meditate, you know, and you can do it until you finish the job. That makes me smile, too. Yeah. I've never seen that. I've never seen that. I don't think it exists anywhere. And, and Joe made, made a very good comment, and I want to share it. That when I commented, not with criticism, but just kind of like, oh, that I've been to two retreat centers that were kind of empty most of the time, Joe made a very good point, a very important point. It's not necessarily simply that nobody's interested, but in so many retreat centers, they'll charge you, I know, I just heard of one, they charge you $30 a day for a little shack and not even any food. That's kind of like almost Motel 6. You know, a crummy motel. But they're clean, you know. Um, and so if you have to spend $30 a day, even for room and board, how many people, I mean, if you're young, you haven't saved up a lot of money, you're not at the end of a successful career, how many say, okay, Mark, are you ready for a two-year retreat? Financially, are you set? Maybe if you come from a very well-to-do family or you invested well or whatever. But, um, you know, that's a major reason. I think you're exactly right. Yo. That's another reason why so many retreat centers are kind of open, because they're charging $30, $40, $50, $60 a day, which if you're coming for a weekend retreat or a week-long retreat, no problem. But who, how many people can say, yeah, I'm going for an open-ended retreat, I want to practice shama until I achieve it, and ching, 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 every single day, you know, another $30, $40. I know for most of my life I couldn't do that. Only when I was in my, well into my 50s, I feel, oh, I think I don't have to be you know, penny-pinching every single step of the way. So that would be different. This could be really quite marvelous if people could be working there and then not always looking, oh, we need, you know, always having 
to send out flyers. Oh, we need more money for yogis, please. Oh, we have my, my, you know, please, please, please send, please be generous, please send out donations for the yogis. It's great if people do, but when in economic hard times, they don't. As not-for-profits all learned in 2008, boy, did the money dry up. So, for so many charitable organizations, money dried up, you know, big time. People don't have the surplus, then they don't give. You know? So that's why I'm running on a, a lot now, but um, as much as we can, I think a lot of brainstorming. I mean, gardening, orchard, and all of that is so good because it doesn't get you caught up in your mind. But I think a lot of, a lot of brainstorming, a lot of creative thinking should go here. Um, if you have 30 meditators, maybe, that's not, maybe there's not enough gardening. You know, maybe there's too many meditators, which is a really wonderful thing. What else could they do for me? I'm, I think two hours a day. That what else could they do? They just, you know, they're living so simply. And if you're living in a temperate climate like Italy, then you don't have to spend big, big utility bills, you know, going through a Norwegian winter, for example. Uh, what could they do for a couple of hours per day that wouldn't completely, you know, just really clutter up the mind, but bring in some income so they got their maybe two meals a day, they got a warm place to live, they're living totally simply. So I think, what's that? Wine. Well, I think the Christian, the Christian monks figured that one out. Yeah. Wine and brandy, sure. Probably in a Buddhist context, something that is non-alcoholic. I know, you, great, you, you raise, why didn't I think of that? You raise non-alcoholic grapes. <laughs> or is that wrong? I've held you up way too long, but I'm not going to apologize. Enjoy your dinner. I'll see you tomorrow morning.